You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a joy to see you all on this Lord's Day, and let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We come to the end of the matter. We have spent just about all fall walking verse by verse through this book in the Old Testament, and today we arrive at its conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 8. Glad you're here. And so as you turn to uh, Ecclesiastes 12, let me read God's word for us. We'll pray, and then we'll dive in to see what the Lord will teach us from his word this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come and turn to your word, given by you, our one shepherd, Father, we pray that you would help us to fear you and to keep your commandments. Lord, we pray that this study of Ecclesiastes has and will continue to bear fruit in our lives. But Holy Spirit, we ask that you might teach us, that you might instruct us, that you might convict us of sin, and Lord, that you would help us to learn wisely in light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you might work in our hearts during this time as your word is preached. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, sometimes the journey is just as important as the destination. Now, there is a popular genre in America films called road movies. You might have seen or heard of these films. These films are very popular. They typically have some sort of main character who is going through some sort of existential crisis, and they have to travel often across the country for some particular reason to get to some particular destination. And over the course of the film, the the main character, the protagonist, is constantly on the move. And of course, the cinematographer lives to take in those long, wide landscape shots that describe the the traveling from point A to point B. And over the course of the journey, of course, the, the protagonist, the main character, learns all sorts of powerful lessons along the way, so they're not the same person when they arrive at the destination. 
Now, there's countless, there's too many movies in this category to even try to list them all, but I'll, I'll list a few. From 1939's The Wizard of Oz is a road movie. Terrence Malick's 1973 film, Badlands, a road movie. Or if you're a fan of Jim Henson, you could have 1979's Kermit the Frog and the very first Muppet movie is its own sort of road movie. These are all over the place. Now, as we look at Ecclesiastes, and as we come to the end of this book, the book functions in a similar capacity like those road movies. The, the preacher throughout this book, throughout these last 12 chapters, has been taking us on a journey. And he's been showing us along the way all of the vanity under the sun. And now we come to the end. But we've been on the road with the preacher for these last 12 chapters, and we have been changed by our journey. And now that we have made it through this book, now that we have suffered our way, we made this long journey, now that we are at the end, we are ready to receive the final conclusion and the lesson of this book. The culmination of our journey is all led up to this point here in chapter 12 at the very end of the book. This is the lesson that we are supposed to glean. Now, here's the irony of Ecclesiastes. The, the preacher of this book, the writer, he has taken us on a journey, and we've looked for meaning, we've looked for purpose, we've looked for significance, all with life under the sun. And apart from a few morsels of breadcrumbs along the way, we have arrived through all 12 of these chapters with our desires unfulfilled. We have exhausted every conceivable option, and yet there's only one thing that remains. And that is the point of this book. That is the preacher's point. All that remains by the end of this whole book is God and his word. You see, by exhausting every other conceivable option for meaning and purpose under the sun, the preacher points to the way, and the way is to look beyond the sun for answers. It's to look to the Lord. So we come to the book's conclusion, and as I do, I want to impress upon you from this text four realities. The one truth. Second, the one shepherd. Third, the one book. And four, the one response we ought to have. So one truth, one shepherd, one book, one response. That's our outline for today. Let's dive in by considering first and foremost the one truth, starting in verse 8 through 10. So the epilogue of the book brings back that very familiar refrain than the motto of our church these last several months, right? I've heard so many of you say it in conversation, vanity of vanities, right? Look at verse eight, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Indeed, these are the words that opened up the book of Ecclesiastes. When you go back to chapter one, the book begins with this cry, this wail of vanity, and it concludes by repeating the very same cry. Now, as a literary device, this functions as what we call an inclusio, an inclusio. An inclusio is like a structural parenthesis, wrapping a section of literature around a common theme that's repeated at the front end and repeated on the back end. So as we've made our way through these 12 chapters of the book, as we've toured life under the sun, the preacher's conclusion at the beginning is the same at the end. 
all is vanity under the sun. Even after the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, we come to the same conclusion the preacher had at the beginning. We arrive at the end of the book. We've made our way through the journey. We've taken our tour of everything the world has to offer, and yet we still come up empty-handed. We still, by this point in the book, have nothing solid to hold on to. So let me give you a brief recap of the journey so far. We began with that whale of vanity in chapter one, and then the preacher makes that observation that there's nothing new under the sun. And so he begins to take us on that tour of life under the sun, showing us everything the world has to offer from intellectual achievements to moral living, to living for pleasure, to living for your career and so much more. And yet he concludes that all of it is but a striving after the wind. And he's shown us the vanity of justice. And he shows us the vanity of justice in a world filled with oppression. He shows us the vanity of wealth, that even if you are inexorably rich and wealthy, you can't enjoy that wealth unless the Lord lets you enjoy that wealth. And often that wealth brings more problems, more difficulties, more challenges, more anxiety to your life. And then by this last quarter of the book, the preacher starts to speak quite repeatedly about death. Death dominates the conclusion of the book. As we consider that wisdom comes, he says, from going to the house of mourning, as we live in the sobering reality that death comes for every one of us. The journey concludes, as we saw last week, with this picture of our aging lives that are like this decrepit house falling apart as the storm clouds of death come upon us, and then all of a sudden the silver cord snaps and we're dead. And he shows us that all is still vanity because we die. Vanity of vanities, he says. So we may not have found very much solid footing throughout this journey of the book, but our journey has changed us. The preacher has left some breadcrumbs throughout our journey of Ecclesiastes, preparing us for his final conclusion. Because the preacher has intended by design to exhaust us. So if you felt exhausted through this series, good, that's part of the point, right? The preacher wants us to be tired and exhausted. He wants our heart to be weary because he wants us to realize the, the sobering reality that we are fallen creatures who live in a fallen world. And so verse 8 ends where the book begins. We aren't the same people, though, as we first started this book of Ecclesiastes. We've been changed by the journey. Our hearts have been softened. And we are ready to consider that one thing that remains, the one truth. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that the sower sows the word, but it falls on different types of soil. And most of our hearts, by our sin, we're not ready to receive the word. Our hearts require supernatural preparation, a good spiritual plowing, if you will, to make our hearts soft and ready to receive the truth. I'm convinced that Ecclesiastes functions like God's plow. It pushes and it cuts and it pierces and it breaks up that hard soil, chopping up everything that we hold dear, everything that we think is important, everything that we think brings significance. It brings it all up. It shows us its vanity. And now by the end of the book, we're ready to receive the preacher's conclusion. We're ready to receive the truth. At the start of the book, we weren't ready. But now 12 chapters in, exhausted, weary, plowed up by the word, we are ready to hear the truth. 
Here's, here's something to consider. We live in a secular age where many people are trying to discover meaning and purpose under the sun. I think Ecclesiastes is incredibly relevant for our own generation. And many are trying to come up with meaning and purpose and significance without any sort of consideration of God. Perhaps you have a coworker who is agnostic or a neighbor who is, quote, spiritual but not religious or a friend who just seems so anxiously discontent about his life. Nothing seems to be working out. They're grumbling. Here's an idea. Invite them out to coffee once a week and read the book of Ecclesiastes with them. That might not be something you had ever thought about doing. That might seem, seem to be a strange place to start reading the Bible with a lost friend. But I think there's something to this book that would be incredibly helpful for our lost friends and neighbors. Because the preacher vocalizes here in this text something of the frustration of our age. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes not only gives voice to that frustration, but it leads us to the doorstep of the gospel. Perhaps in your friendship and your people that you know, maybe the Lord might use Ecclesiastes in their life like a good plow, softening their hearts. So by the end of its study, their lives would be changed and open to receiving the one truth that they had not yet considered or not been willing to consider. So in verse 9, we receive some insight into the preacher's preparation and purpose for this book. So as he sought wisdom, we're reminded that the preacher isn't just collecting all this wisdom for his own use. The wise ought not to hoard wisdom for themselves, but they are to share it and instruct it and teach it to others. You see, the work of a good teacher is toilsome, but it is done in service to those who receive the teaching. Anybody who labors in teaching, particularly those who teach the Bible, you know that it's a difficult task. And we strive for the wisdom from the scriptures in order to help other people gain that wisdom. Indeed, here is good instruction, I think, for future preachers, for teachers in the church. The preacher says he weighed, he studied, he arranged with great care. Do you see that in verse 9? Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. We must carefully weigh what is true, carefully consider what is true. As teachers, as those who labor in teaching, we think critically. We think with logic and we think with wisdom. And we never take any idea merely on face value because somebody else said it. But we study, right? We study by reading and meditating on the scriptures. We open up books. We take notes. We listen to other good teachers. We seek to understand the truth by the labor of study. And then the preacher said he arranged Right? We assemble our discoveries and our study, and we seek to communicate our learned wisdom with others so that they can grasp it more easily than it took us to figure it out in the first place. And so good teachers will give their thoughts structure in order to help others grasp the truth with greater ease, such as the labor of those who teach. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes, even though his journey has at time felt meandering, we're reminded at the end of the book that he didn't just throw this book together. I've had that temptation from time to time, right? In my own preaching and laboring, what is he doing here? What is, how is this connecting? But yet, we're reminded he didn't, this isn't just some conscious brain dump of the preacher. He's not just bleeding on the page. 
He's not just speaking his heart or whatever other excuses teachers give for not carefully considering what they say. The preacher of Ecclesiastes has carefully crafted this book to teach us knowledge and wisdom. And he's done so not haphazardly. He tells us he's done so with great care. So as he's written, this is fascinating. He tells us that as he's written this book, he has done so in order to find words of delight and write words of truth. Do you see that in verse 10? The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. You see, good teachers do both of those things. Both. They accurately tell the truth, the unchangeable and objective truth, the truth that exists outside of their own brains, outside of their own feelings, outside of their own experiences, outside of their own perceptions, the objective truth. Indeed, telling the truth to a world that denies the truth is itself a great challenge. But we want to present the truth in a way with words of delight. Words of delight. In Ecclesiastes, he's done just that, hasn't he? If you've been with us through this series, we've seen how this book is really a masterpiece of, of literature. We've hung on every word. The preacher has written beautifully and persuasively, and he's delighted us with his turn of phrase. And here I think, again, we see a model for good Christian teaching of the truth, good Christian evangelism, right? Tell the truth, but do so in a delightful way. Tell the truth, but do so in a delightful way. The temptation is that in your life and in mine, we want to separate the two, right? On the one hand, some people like to tell the truth, but they do so with such crassness and uncaring and pugnacious language that they actually alienate those that they are seeking to instruct. Instead of leading them to the truth and convincing them of it, they, they drive them away from the truth because of their mean-spiritedness. They give God's words, yes, but make God seem like a misery as they give God's word. On the other hand, some people want to delight their hearers, but to do so without the truth. They teach what is marketable, what will be accepted easily, what will be affirming, what won't challenge them. What, they, they, they preach what will earn praise or what will scratch the ears of their listeners. And Paul calls such teachers those who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. But yet these sorts of folks gain an audience. They earn praise. They get followers. They write New York Times bestsellers. Put simply, the New Testament calls them false teachers. They delight their hearers, but they do so without the truth. Now, as Christians, we need to learn how to preach the truth of the gospel and to do so in a delightful way, a delightful way. The two must go together in the Christian life. You see, we must not compromise on the gospel. We, we tell the truth of God's word, even when it's not popular, even when it's hard for people to hear it. But yet we want to communicate the truth where we help others see the delight of the truth that we are teaching, the goodness of it, the beauty of the gospel. We want them to see it and to savor it and to enjoy it, to see it as good news. In other words, preach the truth, but be winsome as you preach the truth. In your evangelism, tell others about Jesus. Yes, tell them about the gospel. But as you share it, help them to see the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. 
You see, so much of Christian apologetics focuses on defending the one truth. Indeed, that's a really good impulse. It's a biblical impulse. But part of doing evangelism in a post-Christian age is that our culture does not see the gospel as good news. To them, biblical teaching is a horror, not a delight. Just consider, for example, what everybody's talking about these days, right? Sexuality and gender. The biblical teaching on such things, on sexuality, or the biblical teaching of two genders that God designed as male and female, biologically assigned and identified as made in God's image, those truths in itself, holding those convictions, let alone teaching them to others, will earn the ire and the reproach of culture. But yet as we share the truth from God's word, we have to help people not only understand what the truth is, yes, of course, but we also want them to see the beauty of God's truth. Indeed, we believe that the gospel and all of its implications, that it is good news for the world, even though the world can't see it. It's good news. If the gospel is true, and it certainly is, then we need to help this secular world see that the gospel is much better news than anything or any cause this secular world might uphold. So here's a challenge for us as Christians. For every critique we make in the culture, we need to share and model a better way, a more delightful way to show the goodness of that which the scripture teaches. Church, may we not only tell the world the truth, but may we do so in a way that helps them to delight in the truth. Yet the conclusion of the preacher is that there is a truth to understand, a truth to proclaim, a truth to believe. And that's in itself in contrast with our pluralistic age. The Bible affirms one truth, and that one truth is given by one shepherd the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to our second point, the one shepherd in verse 11. The preacher compares the wise instruction of the truth to two images. The first, the words of the wise are like goads. A goad is a a prod used to help keep oxen on the right path. So wise instruction, the preacher says, pushes us and guides us to the truth. And sometimes, frankly, it agitates us. It hurts a little bit. The truth, when we are prodded with it, makes us compliant rather than resistant to the truth. We go from being defiant in our disobedience to being obedient to the truth. We go from rebelliousness against the truth to submission to the truth. This is what wise teaching does. But the second image that the preacher gives is compared to nails firmly fixed. Because truth is unchangeable, and because it is permanent, wise instruction will help make us firm and stable and secure. Just as Jesus says, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And who is that man? The man who hears these words of mine and does them, right? Makes us stable. So God's instruction gives us mental, moral, and spiritual stability in our lives. But we are told that the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is fascinating, is given by one shepherd. 
The shepherd refers to God, who is the shepherd of Israel. Notice how the ESV, if you have that translation, notice how the ESV rightly capitalizes the word shepherd to help us see this connection that the preacher is making. Here we see a remarkable affirmation of Scripture's inspiration. Right? While the preacher has weighed, he's studied, he's arranged, he's put this book together with great care, but yet he says the book is given by one shepherd. You see, while the human authors of the Bible wrote the Bible in their own language, by their own study, by their own research, and their own natural abilities, the primary author of Scripture is the Lord. It's the one shepherd, right? He has written this book. This is God's word. So this is just what Peter would tell us in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here the preacher recognizes that as he's teaching this wisdom, as he's worked hard in putting this book together, he recognizes that there is one shepherd, that the Holy Spirit inspires the biblical authors to write and pen the very words of God. So as we consider our need for truth and wisdom to help us make sense out of all the vanity in the world that we have seen, praise God that he has sent us a shepherd to help us. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the good shepherd. He is the one who leads his people into the truth. He is the one who lays down his life for the flock. He leads us to the truth. Hear Jesus' words from John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see, Ecclesiastes is a journey that takes us to the doorstep of the gospels. God has spoken He has given us his word, and that word became enfleshed in the person of Christ. And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one shepherd, as he gathers his flock. And how is his flock identified? His sheep are identified as those who hear, know, and listen to his voice. Let me ask you a very important question. Do you belong to Jesus's flock. Do you know the voice of the one shepherd? Do you gladly listen and submit your life to the authority of God's word? You see, the preacher of Ecclesiastes points us to the arrival of the one shepherd to come. Christ brings us into his flock, into his fold. He does so by his blood. By his sacrificial death, Jesus helps us in all the vanity of our life by calling us into his salvation. He calls us out of sin, and he calls us into his righteousness. So friend, if you want meaning, if you want significance, if you want purpose to your life, if you want answers to all these questions that you have, you need the help of the one shepherd. Only by turning to Christ. Only by turning to him as our shepherd can we receive the truth because he is the shepherd who speaks the truth, who is the truth. 
You see, through Ecclesiastes, we've, we've gone through this meandering journey of life under the sun, but he has now led us to the only one who can help us, the only one who can give us answers, the only one who can help us not see life as vanity. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one shepherd. He alone can help. He alone can save you. He alone speaks the truth. He alone gives us significance. Friend of the Lord has turned your life upside down through this sermon series through Ecclesiastes. Praise God. The plow of God's word has done its work on your heart. And perhaps today your heart is softened enough, desperate enough, humble enough to hear the voice of the one shepherd. I pray that you would submit your life to him, that you would hear his voice, that you would listen to Jesus, and that you today might repent of your sin and put your faith in this one shepherd who has laid down his life for you. So the one truth is found in the one shepherd who has given us one book for heavenly instruction. And that leads to verse 12 as we consider thirdly, the one book. And we have all experienced something of the vanity of life under the sun that the preacher has described. And the preacher is now helping us see, he's building up to his conclusion in our response, but he's helping us to see how God is the one who can actually help us sort out all the confusion that we sense and we feel. And by God's grace, and it is by God's grace, God has spoken to us. He has given us his word that the Lord, this one shepherd brings clarity in the midst of our confusion. And how does he do so? By giving us the Bible. The one shepherd that we praise, that we worship, the one shepherd that gives truth, he has spoken in the pages of Scripture. So if you say that you follow Jesus, but you don't submit your life to Jesus' words, then I'm not sure what you mean when you say you follow Jesus. He is the one shepherd, and the Bible is his one book. As we consider the sure foundation of God's word upon our lives, the preacher gives a warning in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. (laughs) Beware. Any instructions beyond the pages of scripture should be met with critique and suspicion. This doesn't mean that we can't read anything outside of the Bible, but everything else must be carefully considered and placed under the critique of Scripture's infallible and inerrant authority. And he says here a saying that frustrates every bibliophile. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. If that was true in ancient Israel, how much more true is it today? It's estimated that there are over one million books published every year. Now, that doesn't include academic journal articles, or that doesn't include the blog posts that you skim, and it doesn't include the social media commentary that you stop to peruse. You simply can't read it all, can you? There's too much to read. In fact, anyone who takes seriously the intellectual life of books will be immediately confronted by how weary the whole enterprise is, how exhausting it is. I have an advanced degree, but yet I feel dumber now than I ever have, right? Indeed, reading and studying is its own sort of vanity. The more you learn, the more you realize you just don't know that much. At Redemption Church, we are a congregation that loves books. 
I give away books regularly. We have a book table right out here where we encourage church members to purchase and read good books. We have a theology breakfast where we get together bright and early on Wednesday morning, 6.30, to discuss books and read them. So how should we wisely think about the discipline of reading in the Christian life? Now, if you would be so patient, I want to take a, a pause here to make an application of how we as Christians can think helpfully about reading in the Christian life. Let me give you four words of encouragement here as you think about your own life of reading books. First, recognize the supremacy of the Bible in all your reading. Recognize the supremacy of the Bible in all your reading. If you aren't regularly reading and constantly consuming the Bible, then please, for the love of all that is holy, don't stop by the book table on your way out. Christian books aren't a replacement for the Bible. They are but aids that help us understand the Bible. So if you aren't regularly intaking the scripture, the book of the one shepherd, then please, for the sake of your own soul, unsubscribe from those blog posts you follow, delete your social media, and put your books back on the shelf and pick up your Bible. The Bible is the most important book we will ever read. It is the authority. It is God's word. And guess what? If you never read anything else, that's okay. <laughs> no big deal, right? Prioritizing the scripture is what's most important. Read scripture every day. Let your mind and your heart be shaped by God's one book, the word of God. Indeed, scripture reading is a prerequisite to any other reading that you might do. That's the first thing. Recognize the supremacy of the Bible in all your reading. Second, Read trustworthy books, reliably rooted in the scriptures, and recommended by believers you trust. Read trustworthy books, reliably rooted in the scriptures, and recommend, recommended by believers you trust. Books can be an incredible help as they teach us and instruct us God's word. However, if you don't read all that much, it can be hard to know what are books that are worth we reading. What, what are books that are reliable and trustworthy? Sadly, you can't just go into the bookstore and grab whatever title has God or Jesus in it, and you're going to be okay. There's too much false teaching, sadly, that abounds in the Christian marketplace. So how do you find good books that are helpful, not harmful to your faith? Well, find good books through recommendations from godly people that you trust. Indeed, that's one of the reasons why we have a book table at our church, because it is a curated group of books that we as elders believe are safe and edifying, faithful to the word of God, and encouraging for you to read. So if you're wanting to learn more about a particular topic or area like the Trinity or racism or atonement or history, it's a wise thing to consult an elder or another member in the church who reads regularly that you trust that you know that the books that you are reading are going to be helpful and encouraging in your walk with the Lord, not harmful and detrimental to it. So read trustworthy books. Third, books are a form of teaching. And so read like a Berean, constantly checking in the word to make sure it is so. Books are a form of teaching and instruction. So read like a Berean in Acts, right? Constantly checking in the word of God that if what this book says is true, even good books should be read critically. 
And so if God's word is the authority, we have to do what the preacher says here. We need to beware of anything beyond it. I mean, we can't read anything beyond it, but we do need to be cautious, beware of it. So we have to read with discernment. And so when something that we're reading doesn't sound biblical, or if a text seems to be taken out of context by the author of that book, then put the book down and go and check and make sure. One of the things I love about Greet here on the front row in Theology Breakfast is she looks up every scripture reference a book mentions and makes sure it's the right one. She does this so diligently that she will find mistaken typos where the chapter and verse aren't quite right in the book that she's reading. But I love that spirited faithfulness, right, of of checking like a Berean that this book matches with what the Bible says. That's a good and godly impulse that should be replicated among our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Read with discernment. We need to constantly weigh what is being said in any book that teaches scripture. So if you feel like you are unable to do that, that if you don't have the skill set to read a book with that level of discernment, that's okay. Stop reading that book, put the book down, and work on strengthening your Bible reading and studying before you pick up other books. And then fourthly, be discerning and cautious in reading books which deny the scripture and the gospel. Be discerning and cautious in reading books which deny the scripture and the gospel. There are a lot of books outside of the Christian faith. There are novels, there are histories, there are memoirs, there are social commentary, there are science books, there's poetry. There's an infinite amount of books. Of the printing of books, there is no end. So when reading outside of the Christian tradition, you should be extremely cautious as you do. Many books are written by fools, straight up. So if your mind isn't sharpened by the word of God, and if your soul is not strengthened and grounded in the truth of scripture, then you can be easily duped and deceived by false teaching. There is a place for reading and critiquing non-Christian authors. But as we've discussed before, those who engage in that sort of work handle toxic chemicals. If you're not guarded in that protective gear of biblical wisdom, you will get hurt. Satan can easily deceive you. So consider the warning of Hamanaeus and Philetus that Paul mentions in his letter to Timothy. Here's what he says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, books, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, among them are Hamanias and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. You see, one of the things we can pull as an application from this text in 2 Timothy 2 is that bad books can create quarreling, which do no good, but only ruin those who read them. So avoid the irreverent babble of the books of fools as it brings more and more ungodliness, leading some, sadly, to swerve away from the truth. So avoid such books, particularly if you are unequipped in handling them. Now, while I hope those applications will help you become more discerning in your reading of good Christian books, we must never forget the priority and the supremacy of Scripture in the Christian life. So I don't care how much you read or how little you read, 
But as your pastor, I care greatly about your Bible reading. If you never pick up a book on that book table, I don't care. But I do care that you are studying and being shaped by the word of God. I'd much rather see you study, memorize, and meditate and discuss the Bible. Good books can be an encouragement. They can be a help. They can be of incredible value in the Christian life. But again, the Bible is what's most important. The writing and the printing and the reading of books, there is no end to them, but one thing does remain. One is of utmost importance. Only one book wields absolute authority over us, and it is the Word of God. So read it, study it, and live by it. So the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is beginning to pick up, and we move ourselves now to the final conclusion. The preacher gives one truth given to us by the one shepherd, recorded to us in one book, the Bible, and to the entire book of Ecclesiastes, we ought to have one response. One response in verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear, for, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. After everything has been heard, the journey is complete. One thing remains, one response is fitting. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You see, this is what all of Ecclesiastes has been building up, up for. This is the truth that we are ready to receive. The united response that we ought to have to the vanity of this life is to fear God and to keep his commandments. He says this is the whole duty of man, meaning this is the required response of every person. Man, woman, child, doesn't matter. This is the way we ought to respond. This is not advice for just a certain segment of the population. No, this is counsel, wisdom for all of us. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is largely the same response, isn't it? Right? That we recognize that God is our authority, and so we fear him, and we submit our lives to his word. And so life and meaning and purpose all these things we've talked about, they can't be found under the sun. That's the author's conclusion. You're not going to find them here on the earth. You must look beyond the sun to the creator of the sun. Wisdom demands that we fear the Lord. We fear him. As Christians, we fear God not only as our creator, not only as the omnipotent one who makes us, but we fear the Lord as our heavenly father who loves us, who's adopted us into his family by Christ. And so we live our lives in the reality of his fatherly affection for us in Christ. And so we respect the Lord and we honor him as the giver of life, as the giver of our salvation, as the giver of meaning and purpose for our lives as we now live for his glory. And see, a life of fearing God means that we do what God says. It's as simple as that. We do what God says. We listen to him. We heed his word. We live in the wisdom that he instructs us with. You see, the secret of life, for life of meaning and purpose, it doesn't come from having a big house. It doesn't come from having a big salary. It doesn't come from having big pleasure or big luxury. And the preacher said all that stuff is vanity. God has designed you. He's designed me to find our rest in him. As Augustine's word so frequently quoted, but so powerfully true, our hearts are restless until they find their rest 
in you. The preacher leaves us at the end of the book, exhausted, tired, weary, maybe even a little frustrated from our search. But in our exhaustion, we are now ready by the book's conclusion to find our rest in the Lord alone. So if you are exhausted and if you are weary today, God is leading you to himself. Fear him. Fear him. Leave leave everything behind for him. Lay down your life at his feet. Cling to him and find rest in the Lord. For this is the whole duty of man. So brothers and sisters, let me urge you to live your life in the fear of the Lord. Keep his word. And remember that as you live today, you live your life from the perspective of eternity. That's how the book ends. The book concludes with a call for this response to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And he gives us a final reminder of God's judgment. Look at verse verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, God's judgment is coming. We will all stand before him and give an account for our lives. And those who fear the Lord now will have no need to fear the Lord on the day of his judgment. Even when all of our sins are brought to the surface, and even though all our secrets are exposed, and all of the evil that we've done is revealed plainly before all, if we are resting by faith in Christ, the good shepherd, we will be justified before our heavenly judge. So Christian, in the freedom of the gospel and the rest that you have in Christ, may we live today, moment by moment, boldly in the fear of the Lord. Live your life centered on the word, for it is the only way to escape the vanity of this life. You see, Christ's death and his resurrection from the dead means that we have hope not only today, but tomorrow. Only in Jesus does our vain life have any sort of significance. Because Jesus lives, our lives are not in vain. And because we find our rest in him alone, our lives are not in vain. And because we have recognized the one shepherd and by faith we belong to his flock, our lives are not in vain. And because we fear God and because we keep his commandments, our lives are not in vain. Christian, the vanity of this life is swallowed up by Christ's resurrection. In conclusion to this sermon and indeed to this whole series of Ecclesiastes, let me leave you with Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, let me invite you to go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through 58. I'll give you a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through 58. Paul's words. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for rescuing us out of the vanity of this life under the sun. Lord, that by our sin and by our rebellion, we have made a mess of our lives. We've made a mess of this world. Lord, this world is groaning and longing for its restoration. Lord, we sense and we feel so acutely the vanity of this life that we live. Lord, we are grateful that by your graciousness, you have given us the truth through your one shepherd, through his one book, so that we can have one response to fear you and to keep your commandments. Father, I am grateful that by your grace, you have not left us in the meaningless vanity that surrounds us, but Lord, that in Christ you call us unto yourself. And that because Christ has died, but Lord, also because he has risen our labor, our lives, they're not in vain any longer. Lord, we praise you for this wonderful work of salvation that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we rejoice in this truth, we are grateful and give praise to you alone for your work of salvation. Father, we pray that as your people who belong to your fold, who belong to your flock, we ask that you might help us not live our lives in vanity. But Lord, help us to fear you. Help us to keep your commandments. Help us to live in light of your coming judgment. And Lord, help us to find our rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.